You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida. Come build with us on Christ, our firm foundation. To learn more, visit fbcfreeport.life. of my uh, memories on 4th of July uh, from the time I was little uh, took place on my grandparents' farm in Denison, Texas. That's North Texas. And I have uh, really sweet memories as a boy of getting together at Meemaw and Papaw's farm with my cousins, aunts and uncles. Uh, we would have homemade ice cream. I, I remember uh, rolling the ice cream and and, and uh, fireworks, and uh, lots of fireworks. That, that was the main thing for me as a boy was fireworks, all right? And we wanted to blow everything up with those black cat fireworks. And, uh, our, you know, our fireworks started as soon as, as soon as possible. We didn't want to wait till the uh, evening, but then we would have a big fireworks show. Our uncles always put on a firework extravaganza. We would ooh and awe. And, and out there in that, just that country setting, you could see fireworks just uh, at different homes. And uh, really a special time to commemorate um, what we have fought for as a nation. We are resuming um, our series today through the book of Nehemiah. And in keeping with our theme, A Daring Response to Dark Days, if we're to recover this way of life, this distinctly Christian and biblical way of life, which, uh, which was handed down from the Lord God himself, down through the ages, then it, it will call for a daring response. Um, the fireworks that our world needs to see in our day is a church that is glowing with the flame of Christian devotion unto the Lord in every area of life. And today we're going to look at three distinct areas of life that we need to recover uh, if we are to to, uh, really experience uh, what Jesus talked about in John chapter 10, the abundant life. He said he came uh, to give us life and life uh, more abundantly. And, and so uh, that is one way of encapsulating what we want to recover. So let's pray together and we'll take a look uh, at Nehemiah chapter 7 today. Let us pray. I'll tell you what, before we pray, let me read um, from Nehemiah chapter 7 and we will look together uh, at the first six verses. And keep in mind, there are 73 verses in this chapter, and we will touch on the full scope of this chapter, though not down to the minute detail, because this is primarily an exhaustive list of names, a genealogy. Here we go in chapter 7, verse 1. Nehemiah says, Now when the wall had been built, it's completed here, and I had set up the doors, the doors are installed, the gates are are hung, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites, the Levitical priest, had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani 
and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. I gave them charge over Jerusalem for he, this is talking about the second guy, Hananiah, was more faithful and God-fearing as a man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy. This goes back to Ezra 2, that genealogy of those who came up at first into Jerusalem. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the Lord's day and that we have a a routine and a rhythm built into our life as a people where we rest from our work and our toil. Lord, and we cast our burdens on you. We catch our breath. We pause from the busy, important things that demand our time and our attention, our energy. We pause and we say implicitly that you are in charge, not us, and that the world continues because you hold everything in your hands, not because we're good at juggling things. So, Lord, today help us catch our breath. Help us rest. Help us in our Sabbath to trust you and to trust all things into your care, all things that occupy our thoughts our concerns. Lord, today let us take this space in our life that comes around weekly. Let us focus upon you in your word. God, you in all your glory, you with your provisions for our life, and you as the chief end of our very purpose in life to, to glorify you, to enjoy you forevermore. Help us, God, today to hear from you as you speak to us from your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, we are off of hiatus after two weeks, and in our last message, uh, we concluded chapter 6. And what happened in chapter 6? Well, they got the wall finished. 52 days, and they built some two-plus miles of wall, some 30 to 40 feet tall, some 9 feet thick. It was crude, to be sure. It wouldn't win any pretty wall awards, but it sure will keep uh, their enemies from coming in and just annihilating them and pillaging them and trampling upon them. So this great feat is achieved. And and it says at the end of of chapter 6, that when the, the, the enemies around and the nations around saw this, it says they were afraid and their faces fell. In other words, 
um, they backed off. They said, um, we underestimated these guys. Uh, we thought we were going to come in and pick on them and have our way with them. And look what they've done in 52 days. And it says that they perceived, the enemies perceived that God had achieved this. That, that the Israelites had done this because the Lord had helped them. Amen? That's the testimony that we want our church to leave and, and, and to, to give to Freeport and Walton County. We're kinda, we can resonate with Israel, all right? Um, we're small in number, all right? We, uh, we've been down and out, and some have probably counted us out. Uh, but when God's people put themselves in God's hands, and they dare great things with great faith and a great God, um, God loves to show up and show off in those moments, doesn't he? And so that's, that's what um, you know, I love about this book, Nehemiah. We see God shining uh, through the daring response to these dark days. Um, <coughs> in chapter 7, onward to the end of chapter 13, uh, really, Nehemiah is going to shift gears. And, and there's a lesson here for us. Nehemiah initially just sets out to build the walls, right? He has a burden for his people. The walls are down. But like uh, so many projects that we take on, the, the deeper he gets into it, the bigger this thing grows. And so God providentially appoints Nehemiah's governor and shows him that the scope of his mission is actually a lot bigger. And so we have a kind of a shift in focus from rebuilding walls and infrastructures, such as the temple, to now rebuilding God's people as a people, as a society. And so Nehemiah is now in the business of building people. Um, and so we'll see, in the, in the, as this story plays out, there's a, a massive resettlement um, initiative. There's the... the Regular, uh, re um, regular reintroducing of, of the law and, and, and worship uh, into their way of life, including festival observances. Um, and, and, and as this uh, picks up speed, uh, the spiritual formation begins to happen to the people. We're going to see uh, confession, brokenness over sin, repentance, a deep heart work done in these people. And they will revisit the covenant and come back together around this covenantal uh, relationship with God where they are keeping his law, walking in obedience, and enjoying his blessing. And then Nehemiah will uh, round out this book and, and this series with uh, a series of other reforms to uh, the people of God. I was thinking, how do we wrap our minds around what Nehemiah is doing, and how do we kind of hang all of this story on some big thought pegs so that it, we can hold on to it and, and really apply it to our life. And so there's really three pieces to this post-exilic rebuild. All right, you, you remember in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they, they lay Jerusalem flat. 
They carry God's people into exile. For 70 years, they're in exile as slaves. And then they begin to uh, matriculate back into Jerusalem. They make their way home. But it's another 70 years that the wall lies in ruin and they're vulnerable to attack. But what happens is really uh, three phases of rebuilding. There is the temple that is rebuilt in Ezra, some 100 years, give or take, before. Then there is the wall. And then in today's text, we see what they begin to build are households. So these three, uh, these three things here, temples, uh, the temple, the wall, and households, they're really uh, synecdotal. Or they, they are parts that represent a full picture here. So think with me for a minute. Um, the temple really uh, represents a transcendent way of life. All right? The, the temple and all of it, its worship centering around God represents their recovery of a trans transcendent way of life. The wall represents a protected way of life, a way of life that can, can persist and be handed off from generation to generation without disruption. And then thirdly, the households represent a potent way of life, a, a fruitful and productive and multiplying or potent way of life. And this is really the, the full scope of, the, of what Nehemiah is trying to recover for his people. If we're going to recover our way of life, the distinctly Christian way of life for future generations, then we need to pattern um, our recovery after Nehemiah. Uh, I was thinking, it's hurricane season here. And uh, Amanda and I were married uh, on August 26th of 2017 while Hurricane Harvey was ravaging Houston, which is where we were living at the time. We were in Brazil getting married while Hurricane Harvey was threatening to destroy our home. And we have some people in our church who have lost everything to a hurricane. And, and, and for people who have lived in hurricane country, we know what it is. Many people know what it is to lose everything. And so you, you have a unique vantage point um, living here and, and, and facing the, the aftermath of destruction. You can uniquely, to some degree, put yourself in the shoes of these returning exiles. I mean, there's just nothing here. It's just a, a daunting prospect to rebuild everything from the ground up. And so what we see here is really, and it reminds me of in Houston. We, we had billboards go up in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, and we had the hashtags, Houston Strong. And, and this is really Nehemiah's Build Back Stronger campaign, all right? Uh, we've been laid flat, and, uh, flat but we're going to build back stronger than before. And so it's really in three phases, and there's three pieces to this puzzle. Let's look at the first one. Recovering the transcendent way of life, um, which the temple is, is emblematic of. And this is the first phase, and it happens in Ezra. Ezra rebuilds the temple. He reestablishes the priesthood. He reinstitutes the law. He revives worship. 
he reor he reor re sorry he reorients the returning exiles around God. So the transcendent life has, uh, as it's recovered, it means we once again bring God back into the center of our lives. Amen. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. The throne, so to speak, at the center is where we invite God and we reorient our lives around God at the center. And so that's what we see in verse 1 of chapter 7 today. It says, when we rebuilt the walls and set up the doors, then uh, it says the gatekeepers... And the singers and the Levites were appointed. And so, now that the, the structures are built, the temple is built, now it is time to put the people in their places with their functions to recover this transcendent part of life. In verse 67, it says there are 245 singers. All right, so that gives you a picture here. This is an enormous choir, all right? Uh, 245 members in the choir. I don't know if you've ever heard a great choir sing before, but this is just a, a, uh, a powerful um, army of singers. If you could imagine all of these voices trained and harmonizing together, this would fill up the temple. This would reverberate off the walls. This would, uh, you would feel it, all right? And so what we see here is that singing, and if you, if you look throughout the scripture, singing is vital to worship, to transcendency and apprehending God who is above. So singing is vital. Um, you know, we kind of grew up in, in, a, in a church where guys don't sing, and, and we can unpack the, the reasons behind that, and it's not all their fault uh, at all. But men sing um, on battlefields, all right? Men sing on sailboats. Men sing in prison work crews. Um, and, and, and in fact, a lot of uh, the, the rich American uh, Worship songs uh, include the Negro spirituals, and singing came out of hard times. And so what we see is the, the, the vital place of the transcendent uh, worship. It, it, it lifts us heavenward in hard times, in dark days. We need to have that transcendent peace in our life. It carries us on this journey. Um, one, um, one church father, I, I, I couldn't track down who he was. I, could, I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but one of the early martyrs commented that his, while his feet were in the stocks, you know the stocks were when they are chained to the walls in prison, he said, well, our feet were in the stocks, but we felt no pain because our hearts were in heaven. And that, that was through prayer and singing in those hard times, the transcendent lifted them. It strengthened them. Um, I remember being in Bratislava when I served as an interim pastor at a, at a church in, in Slovakia. And I attended a concert at St. Martin's Cathedral. And uh, it was just this 
cathedral that just uh, hundreds of years old and rich in history. Beethoven had performed his pieces there. Um, and this choir came in, and they were singing in Czech. So I couldn't understand the words, but I, I knew the hymns, so I, I could worship in my heart. But as they began to sing, and that music filled that cathedral, I mean, it just was otherworldly. I don't know if you've had that experience in your life, but, but music is so vital. And I just remember closing my eyes and just worshiping. It just felt like I was lifted up. Uh, and and I, I left a profound uh, mark on me because I remember uh, even as they were singing, there was a lull in the music. And even through those massive stone walls in this beautiful cathedral. And, and you know, cathedrals uh, going back for, for centuries, you know, millennium, uh, cathedrals were built to speak that word transcendency to us. They, when you walk into a cathedral, these vaulted ceilings reaching to the heavens, they're meant to show you and help you feel how small you are and how big God is. Uh, we lose that in our modern buildings, all right? But the reason why, why people would invest uh, fortunes over centuries to build cathedrals is because they understood the importance of transcendency that we can't live in this life without that peace pervading all of life. Amen? But I remember as I was in there, those big stone walls could not keep out the sirens. We're in this big bustling city with crime and crisis and chaos, and those I remember hearing the sirens coming in through the walls. It was an interesting mix of music, and sirens. That's life. Um, if all we hear is sirens and we don't hear the music, we're going we're gonna to burn out fast. We're going to give up. We're going to become cynics fast. Amen? But if we wall ourselves off and we just live in our own little fantasy world where all we want is a great kumbaya experience, and we turn off our ears to the sirens in the world, then we will abdicate on our mission. It's both. We worship God even as we carry forth his mission. And so that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Recovering a transcendent way of life. The Levites are appointed. These are the priests. They're kind of like pastors. A pastor's role is not quite that way. We don't need a priest in the same way anymore because Jesus Christ is our high priest. But the priest is the mediator between God and man. He's the middleman. He brings God down. He shows us who God is. He, he communicates God through his teaching, his word, so that we know God. And then he represents people to God. The priest would go on behalf of the people to make sacrifices, to purify and sanctify God's people. He is the bridge between a holy, transcendent God and finite sinners. Now, Jesus is that bridge now. All priests in the Old Covenant are pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the bridge. Through Jesus, God comes down. He's imminent. He's close. You can reach out and he will be your God by faith. 
in Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. He deals with our sin, the very thing in the way. He gets it out of the way so that we can be reconciled to God in a transcendent relationship that lifts us upward in worship, pointing one day to the day where we'll be with God in his kingdom forever. Amen? So that's what the priests are doing. I like what Matthew Henry pointed out. He noted that it was interesting that Nehemiah lists in the same place the gatekeepers in chapter 1 and the singers and the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. He lists them all together. Why would the temple worshiping crew be listed with the gatekeepers? Well, part of the problem is there were few people, so they may have been pulling double duty. All right, the, 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 the singers and the, and the priests at the gates of the temple may have also been serving as gatekeepers in the city because of the limited people. That's kind of a question mark in the text. It's a little vague. But Matthew Henry points this out. He says, God's worship. Matthew Henry is a 400 years ago old school commentator. A lot of gold in his commentary. He says, God's worship is the defense of a place. Interesting. God's worship is the defense of a place. And his ministers, when they keep their duty, they are those who guard the walls. <clears throat> so, a transcendent uh, uh, worshiping people, worship protects us. It guards us in its own way. And I want you to think about this for a minute. The word religion, which by the way has gotten a bad rap, we, we talk about... <clears throat> We say it's not religion, it's relationship. Well, that was an overcorrection. There was a correction to the legalism of religiosity. So a more apt statement is it's not religiosity, it's relationship. But we could also redeem the word religion here because religion means to bind. The word religion means to bind, to hold together. All right? And that's the way that worship protects God's people. It holds us together. <clears throat> you take a look at what has happened in our secular age, in our non-religious age, where, where families no longer pray together, no longer worship together, no longer partake in religion together. They're no longer... Um, bound together. We have a disintegrated, fragmented culture. Families torn asunder. Churches empty. Um, we, we have chaos and disorder at every level. And, and, and it is the um, losing of religion and, and the, the center. With, when God was taken out of the center of American uh, life and culture, what, there was nothing to hold us together. Now, we've tried. We try to hold together with hobbies. All right? Parents are hoping they can, you know, I hope my son plays basketball like I do, so we'll have something in common when he gets older. <laughs> hobbies, TV shows, vacations. You know what? Those are nice things. I don't want to 
you know, I don't want to say anything negative about the gifts, the, the, the activities, but they cannot replace the transcendent. Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. God is what holds at the center everything together. He's what holds God's people together. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth. And it says all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In other words, God is transcendent. He is above and beyond everything. And then it says, in him, listen to this, all things hold together. You see that? All things hold together. That's God. So what I'm saying to our culture is we're trying to hold family together and life together and marriage together and, and our emotional well-being together and our hope together with Elmer's glue. And we need Gorilla Glue. You can't replace God with secular trinkets and um, band-aids. And so what we see is the people of God in chapter 7, they prioritize this recovering of the transcendent way of life. In verse 70, we see that the heads of families, these are the fathers and <clears throat> the patriarchs, and then it says the governor, so the heads of, 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 of the, the various levels of, of the civil magistrate, it says they gave money and priestly garments. In other words, they invested in recovering worship. And then it says in verse 72 that everyone else followed their lead. And we need to say that to fathers. Your families follow your lead. And to leaders, the people follow your lead. And when, when from the top down, worship is prioritized and valued and invested in, then God's people, too, will see the importance. And so that is a word to us to recover and prioritize the transcendent. In fact... This is a word to parents in Deuteronomy 6. It says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, you're to have God, the transcendent being, at the center of your life where you love Him with passion, with every ounce of your being. And then it says you are to teach your kids how to do the same. Amen? Let's look at the second piece here. Not only is it a transcendent way of life, but a protected way of life. In verse 1, Nehemiah says, When the walls were built to protect, and the doors were set, all right, so that they could, uh, they could control who is coming into their city, who is bringing their influence, all right? All right, they, they, they had these gates, all right? And if you're coming from New York or California, all right, you had to, Stop in and say, all right, we're, we're here to contribute, all right, um, and we're not here to pillage. <laughs> That's a little, little bit of Freeport humor there, sorry. Um, and I would say that coming from the outside. See, I like to posture as an insider, but I, you, you guys know the truth on me. I'm a Texas boy. Um, but then, after building the structure, they appoint the gatekeepers. It's so vital to protect all that they have built. 
lest the enemy come and take it away. In verse 2, Nehemiah does something strategic here. He appoints two chief of police. All right, two, uh, two men who are in charge of the security and the, the well-being of the entire city of Jerusalem. One of these men um, is his brother, Hananiah. The other is a man named Hananiah. What is important is these men are trustworthy. All right, you don't entrust the well-being and the safety of, of, of these precious people of God to just anyone. These men have to be proven and trustworthy because there's a lot of lives and future in their hands. So Nehemiah knows his brother. He's known Hananiah for a long time. He knows his reputation. He knows that he is a trustworthy, credible, um, competent man for this job. <clears throat> And then it says that Hananiah, um, his reputation, if I can find this here, <laughs> says he was more faithful and God-fearing uh, of a man than many others. So Hananiah had proven himself to have the integrity and trustworthiness uh, of, of God's people. Th these were two men that if they were over everything, people would sleep good at night. These are the kind of, 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 of protectors we need in our lives. All right? I try to be that for our family. All right? uh, I'm saving up for, for some firepower. I've got my black powder rifle at home, but I, I wouldn't want to fire that off at night on an <laughs> intruder because we'd die of smoke inhalation. But um, I, I have a, a, you ask my wife, I have a rubber mallet that I keep by my bedside. Um, I, anyways, I need to upgrade that. I'm sure some of you guys are ashamed of your pastor right now. But, um, and I, we have Lucy the lab, and she's sweet as a teddy bear, but she has the most ferocious bark ever. But these are things as a husband and a protector that we think about because we're entrusted with the well-being of people in our charge. And so... Uh, and it, and it begins in your heart. You have to have a frame of mind that, that says, this is my job. I'm going to stand between those I love, those God loves, and danger. And so I try to model that and, and, and give Amanda that safety. Um, and so if we go on a walk, I have my, my rubber mallet with me in case a stray dog gets out. We lock, we, what I'm saying is you have to protect what matters to you. You have to have a plan. It can't just be lip service. And so, Nehemiah here, he has these two faithful men. In fact, uh, I like this quote from General uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. You may have heard this. He says, leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. All right? You have to have a game plan, but you also have to have the character, the, the, the strength of character to execute that plan because when it gets scary... Uh, it takes courage. But he says, if you must be without one, strategy or character, he says, be without strategy. All right? So character matters. And so Nehemiah appoints these men. But then notice his strategy. In verse 3, it says he, the, the gates are not to be open until the sun is hot. 
this, in other words, this is, this is kind of a, a, uh, a special measure until the threat is not so high. Normally, the gates would be opened at sunup because uh, a city was a center of commerce, right? People needed to come and go and sell and trade and barter and network. I mean, this was a, a city was a place of, of, of busy uh, on, uh, enterprise and, 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 and commerce, but they had kind of limited that. So uh, they didn't do what we did. They didn't do a full shutdown and just destroy everything, but they waited until basically noon, when the sun was hot, and then they would open up for business. This was because they didn't have the manpower to defend against enemies. So this is strategy. And then they would lock everything down at the end of the day. Um, and says they would bar and shut the doors. In other words, this was a, a very serious lockdown. And then he says, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some at their doors. Why is this strategic? Because nobody guards uh, like someone who owns and has something to lose. All right? if, if you've ever seen uh, the, the security guards that, that get hired out, they don't have a vested interest in the place, those are the guys taking naps on the job. All right? I, I, I don't want to think about uh, some of the, the comedies of, of bank robberies. Uh, half of the, the bank robberies depicted on TV, the guard is asleep. All right, and they just waltz right in and waltz right out, and the guard wakes up and he says, what happened? Well, Nehemiah doesn't have that. He has people standing guard in front of their own homes because you know they have a vested interest. They're not going to let anyone creep in and tear down their homes again. So this is strategic. <clears throat> Do we think like Owners or like hirelings? Are you standing guard like someone that's getting paid minimum wage for, to guard a property that you care nothing about? Or are you taking ownership? Do you see the church and the family and the marriage and the community as yours? That mindset there we're going to recover the good way of life, the, the distinctly Christian way, we have to protect this way of life and stop letting the world trample and pillage everything that we have worked so hard to cultivate. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says that we're to be praying constantly, watching with perseverance. We're to be diligent in, in, watch, in prayerfully watching over the affairs of our life, the things that matter to us, we're to be prayerfully watching, guarding. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, it says that mature Christians, that this is the, the, the mindset of a mature Christian, that we are having the power, our powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish between good and evil. Um, what he's getting at here is a mature Christian is trained. You can spot what is good 
and what is bad, what is helpful for building you up spiritually, building your family up, building your kids up, building your marriage up, building your own spiritual health up, and you can spot what is detrimental, what is toxic, what is bad. And guess what? As a gatekeeper, you let in and you welcome in the good things. You, you nurture them, all right? But the bad things, you stop them at the door and say, you're not getting in to my life, to my family. Your influence will not come in here. This is both on a personal level. We are to spiritually guard, but also as a people. We haven't done this. We haven't done this well. Uh, I think about the way we haven't guarded our children. I think about the, the fact that our children for generations have been carried into exile as they're bussed off to the government who hates God to indoctrinate our kids. There's a lot of dots to connect here, okay? Um, the, it's, it's, in, in the 60s, parents were worried about keeping their kids chaste, sexually pure, because of the, the sexual revolution. But now, um, we're just worried about keeping our kids um, believing in God, period, because they are indoctrinated into an atheist, secular paradigm, all right, where the world came from nothing and it's going to nowhere, all right? You can't send your kids there eight hours a day, five days a week, and expect them to come back um, thinking like you do. Uh, the, the Department of Education on social media was flying the gay pride flag this month, proudly announcing that we're going to instill this belief system into your kids. We have to protect our way of life. And that brings us to the final point. There is a potent way of life. And we know it's potent because the government, the socialist government that's occupying the White House right now, um, and the Department of Education and every other person uh, in the world wants a piece of this way of life, and that is the family, the household. Uh, in verse four, it says the city wall was wide, or the city was wide and large, but it was empty. It says there were not many or any houses that had been rebuilt. So this is where Nehemiah turns his focus. In verse five, he says, "Then God put it into my heart." Now we know Nehemiah is a man who prays and seeks the Lord before he acts. He listens and he waits on God and God speaks to him and gives him wisdom. And so in, in, in Nehemiah's planning and leading and rebuilding, God comes and speaks to him very intimately, very directly, very personally and says, this is what you do next. Now be careful, Nehemiah puts this in his prayer journal. It's okay for you to write that in your prayer journal sometimes. Um, I heard God say and tell me to do this. Now be careful going public with that, all right? A lot of times that's used as a, as a kind of a trump piece to end conversations, to end arguments. I mean, you can't argue with someone if they say, the Lord told me to get a divorce, all right? The Lord told me to leave my family and abandon. You can't really argue with that. It's a form of manipulation. Be careful. But Nehemiah has that vital relationship, and the Lord put it on his heart. 
to issue a genealogy. This is uh, reorganizing and recovering the household. All right? <clears throat> and then he found the record from Ezra 2. And so he now knows um, the exiles as they're coming in and they're resettling. He knows who truly belonged to Israel. And these are the people who would have first claim on moving in and recovering their property, recovering their building sites. I, I, we can imagine people saying, well, I think we were somewhere over here. We're not sure. Um, you know, my great-great-grandmother said she lived on the southeast end of town. We're not sure where. But the genealogy was kind of the waiting list to get your roots planted after being displaced for some hundred years you know, 140 plus years. So this, this was huge for these people to get resettled and reestablished. I, don't, I, I won't tarry long here because uh, of our time. But I want you to consider for a moment what the household used to be and what it's become. We know the first household is in Genesis in the garden. God made Adam out of the dust of the earth. He took Eve out of his rib, and then he put them together, and they had children, and that's the first household. And this family got to work. They were cultivating the garden. They were taking dominion. That's the cultural mandate, all right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion. The Garden of Eden was meant to be expanded to the ends of the earth, that this world would be full of people worshiping God, transcendent, protected, um, potent households is the vision in the Bible um, for life. Modernity has pillaged the household, has stripped it bare, has mined it for its gold. All right, you think about the family used to work together as a unit, but then the, the Industrial Revolution took productivity outside of the home. It stripped the home of its productive uh, mission and purpose, which was part of the, the religion, the binding of a family. They worked together. They survived together. They fed each other. Food on the table was because they were together. But now we see this fragmentation. Education was taken out of the home. You realize that? Education used to be the parent's job. Now, that's not to say there weren't Christian uh, cohorts where families worked together collectively. But the parents used to have this job of discipling and catechizing and teaching their kids. And then even discipleship has been farmed out to the youth group, all right? A lot of parents send their kids to church. They, they don't know why quite. There's something there. My, my, my dad, his parents sent him to church. A lady would pick him up and take him to church. They didn't see any value in church for themselves but they just had an inkling that maybe there was something good. But the home has been emaciated. We need to recover the home. We need to recover households, their vitality, their force, and their potency. I'm going to close with a couple of quick notes here, and we'll get out of here. But um, there's a forthcoming book called It's Good to Be a Man. It's written uh, to men, to an audience of men who don't read a lot, so I don't expect book sales to be up very high. Uh, 
But this excerpt is on the money for what we're talking about today. I want to give you a glimpse of what the Bible has in mind when it talks about the household. So that you can know when Nehemiah is organizing this resettlement, he understands the potency, what will come out of the household. Listen to this. This is kind of a, 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 a biblical theology of the household here. A household is a miniature world. I'm, I'm reading an excerpt, excerpt here. A household is a miniature world. It is a microcosmos. Think of the house, the cosmos, the ordering of the world that God made. He ordered it. The house is a microcosmos. Every household is one atom in the substance of God's kingdom. All right? And it is through man's powerful sex drive that these households are built. Let me pause for a minute. What does sex have to do with rebuilding? Well, it's right at the center of it. It, it is the, 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 the drive to be fruitful and multiply that God uh, put in man and in woman that drives the engine. And in fact, that helps us understand that uh, the problem of, of mixed marriages in Nehemiah. Twice in this book, they have to address mixed marriages. What was a mixed marriage? Well, it was, it was guys who wanted sex and wanted marriage, but they intermingled with pagan, um, with pagan marriages, which uh, polluted and, and, and weakened God's people. <clears throat> so so the, the, the household is built through this, this powerful drive. And then it says, then through households, societies are established. This is Nehemiah's thinking. Are you with me? Nehemiah knows it's the households that are the building block for society. Then he says, culture begins and it emanates from the household. It is where the next generation of men, and we can say, insert here, and women, are shaped and trained until they leave their father and mother. And that's when their training is finished. And it says, and they join themselves to a wife, to a spouse here, and they start the process anew. So this is a cycle. It is through households that dominion is exercised. One man alone achieves very little. It's not good for man to be alone, um, a, um, Genesis says. A man and a wife achieve more. A man, his wife, and their grown children are a force to be reckoned with. This is the biblical picture of a household, a force to be reckoned with, especially as those children in turn build their households that fit together in his, establishing an extended household of considerable power. As households multiply like this, cities are formed. Nehemiah understands Jerusalem as a city will be built as the households, godly, potent, worshiping, Protective households, as they grow, the city will be formed. And he goes on, and, and from there he just draws out the fact that from cities come states, and from states come commonwealth and kingdoms, even empires. And they all spring forth from this drive that God built into man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. And so, 
Nehemiah sets about to recover the household. We need to recover our household. They can't be the place where we sleep and watch Netflix and eat Chinese takeout. They need to be potent, teeming with life, dominion-taking enterprises where we are building future generations through education and discipleship, worship, hospitality, prayer, where, where the future generations are being developed and trained to love and know and fear God. And I've got good news for you. It doesn't matter where you started. You can start fresh today. Whether you had a good home or no home, a good dad or no dad, or a bad dad or a bad home, when you come to Christ, he makes everything new. And we're kind of like Jerusalem. There's a lot of room to grow here. We've got a lot of room for families and marriages. And, and you know what? If you can't have children and you can't have this household, households in the Bible um, take shape in a number of ways. You can be a nurturing mother and a strong father figure without having your own biological kids. In fact, the church in and of itself is a household of households, even as Jerusalem, the people of God, were the household of God. I want to leave you with John Stott. No matter where you came from, when you come to faith in Christ, here's what John Stott, the old London preacher, says. Um, when, when he was converted, he said his conversion, his faith, relates him to God and to man and to history. It, it binds you to your Lord, to your people, and to this redemptive history that God is doing. Religion, which is a, a way of understanding our relationship with God, it binds us to the Lord. There's relationship there. It binds us to one another. There's fellowship here. And it binds us to even the people of God. We are part of redemptive history when you come to faith in Jesus. He says this, maybe... He says, uh, it enables me to answer the most basic of all human questions. Who am I? You ever asked yourself that? Who am I? And to say, in Christ I am a son or daughter of God. That's who you are. You are in the household of God. In Christ I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. <clears throat> and in Christ I discover my identity. In Christ, I find my feet. You get to put down roots when you are in Christ. And then he says, in Christ, I come home. That's the invitation this morning. As we recover this way of life, transcendent, protected, and potent, the invitation is no matter how far away you've been carried by your own sin, by the sins of others, no matter how many generations your family were exiled away from God, not knowing the truth about God, by faith in Jesus who died on the cross for you, you can come home. Put your feet on the ground and be part of God's family. And that's a forever family. Let's pray together and we'll close. Thank you for listening. Are you ready to take God at His Word? We invite you right now to respond by faith and obedience. If you'd like to speak further about spiritual matters, 
or to learn more about First Baptist Church in Freeport, Florida, contact us today at fbcfreeport.life.